0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of Digital Noir Presents Humans Aren't Robots. I'm your host, Sam Davies. Today, we're speaking across the pond. Well, it's a pretty large ocean, actually, with Lou Weiss from Shutterstock. Lou is the Chief Marketing Officer at Shutterstock. I think most of our audience, being in the creative and marketing spaces, will have, if not used, then at least heard of Shutterstock. It's the world's largest stock photography Website, Not just stock photography, but uh, stock content. Um, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Lou has had an extremely interesting career and really been at the forefront of content marketing from the very early days, way before it was called content marketing. We sort of took a bit of a deep dive back into his history, which I found fascinating. Um, I would love to actually sit down and talk with Lou further. Then we dived into Shutterstock, and um, he was actually over in Sydney talking at Mumbrella uh, last month about how businesses can leverage uh, breaking news to create viral content, which he managed to do uh, with some cool stuff around the Fire Festival. Definitely tune into this episode if you are involved in any sort of content marketing or interested in marketing at all. Uh, Lou had some great insights. Hopefully, I can catch up with him over a beer in New York over Christmas. Fingers crossed. So, without further ado, let's jump in with Lou. Well, that works. Hey, Lou, how are you? Thanks so much for taking the time.
1: Sam, thanks for having me.
0: No problem at all. So, you were um, down here in Australia a, a couple of weeks ago now.
1: That's true. I was. I was down for the umbrella Conference and... Uh... Had a great time.
0: First time down here or you spent a bit of time in Oz?
1: It was the first time I'd been down there. I met with our our sales team and went to the conference and uh, just had a fantastic time.
0: Oh, awesome. So um, for those that don't know, Lou um, is at Shutterstock and was down talking at Mumbrella um, in Sydney, I believe, but you're also going you down to Melbourne as well?
1: No, I was only in Sydney, but I did get the walk from Coogee to Bondi. How, Mountain,
0: how, so how was... good is that experience? It's such a beautiful coastline. fantastic it is it's one of those um cities I think that you obviously see a lot on you know t v and in the media the harbour but when you when you actually stand there it's um it re- it really is something
1: it was very much quite something, and uh beers at the iceberg club was not a bad thing
0: yeah it's a good spot um so I'm kind of interested in uh we can we can talk through um shutterstock and some of the work you're doing there, but I'm kind of interested in taking a bit of a dive back into some of your um history, so you've been working in and around marketing and and online um, in particular for, for quite some time. So where did you get your start in in marketing and, and digital in particular?
1: Uh, that's a great question. I'm almost embarrassed to admit how long I've been doing it. But uh, <laughs> My first job out of college, I was working for Sony back when they were sort of an even cooler company than they are now. They were mm. a little bit the Apple of their time. They had sort of the really cool hardware that everybody wanted. And then in 1995, the internet started happening and I thought it just looked like too much fun to not do. And so I left Sony, uh, and went to my first internet startup and, uh, my mother didn't understand that then. And I don't think she understands it now. Uh, (laughs) It was very tough to explain that change.
0: So what was the internet startup that you left Sony for?
1: It was a company called Air Media. It was the world's first wireless internet broadcast network. And what we did was, it was actually, oddly enough, it was content marketing. Hmm. It just wasn't called content marketing back then. We made, uh... Business development deals with a lot of content producers, uh, the CNN website and uh, a, a financial uh, stock ticker website called Quote.com and a, a American sports website called Sportsline.com that was subsequently acquired by CBS, which is one of the big broadcast networks. Mm. And what we did was we ran a 24 by 7 newsroom where we would scour their sites for interesting stuff and they would allow us to put out snippets of it wirelessly over, this, over the national net, uh, wireless networks to people's... Devices, because uh, back then, believe it or not, even at work, having internet access meant having a dial-up account rather than having sort of always-on internet access. Mm. And so, in real time, we'd push out news headlines, the score of the ball game, uh, stock quotes, sort of that you know, real-time sensitive information. And if you found something engaging that you wanted to click on, you'd click on it, and it would take you back to the website. And this was back when there weren't very many websites, so it was like a very limited environment of who to do deals with.
0: That's quite ahead of its time, and I imagine you were doing deals with, yeah, you know, like you mentioned, some of the some of the bigger corporates out there.
1: We were doing deals with the people who had websites. There was just <laughs> uh, very little to choose from back then. We were a little ahead of our time, I think.
0: Yeah, so I mean, essentially, sort of, you know, curated feed.
1: That's exactly right, and it was it was not only curated, but it was personalized. So we hmm. curated, so we ran the twenty four by seven newsroom. We decided what news went out and what didn't and then on the on the on the user side they could set preferences to say this is my favorite baseball team and these are the stocks that i own so that we what, what out of what we broadcast they would only see what they wanted to see
0: that's cool so so what was the wireless network that that was in place
1: it was we actually we 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 did a deal with a company called pagenet which was a national paging network um, kids pagers are these things that are like smartphones only they used to display phone numbers and very short messages mm. and we basically used it for a purpose for which it was never intended, which was to use as a national data broadcast network. And uh, I was very happy that they let us do it. I cut that deal, and uh, I think they were less happy over time because uh, we were using a lot of their their network was designed for very small messages, and uh, we consumed a fair bit of bandwidth, I must say.
0: So you're sending out via pages, so essentially like a just a link or
1: not via pagers Mm. we were sending out via devices that we had created that had paging chips and paging technology inside of them that were wired in through uh the pc ports of the time Mm. to so whether your laptop or your desktop it would it would show up on your pc screen it was a client-side application on the pc wow
0: that really is ahead of its time
1: yeah the 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 patents turn out to be uh reasonably valuable
0: I think I was still using a, you know, like a bulletin board systems in in 1995,
1: 1996. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and to a certain extent, so was I. But uh, <laughs> we we basically said, well, the internet, we don't know when that's going to happen, and mobile, we don't know when that's going to happen. So let's do both of those things at the same time.
0: So, so I suppose, from out of interest' sake, w- were there people at that time? Um, and you know, I suppose the last you know the last twenty years have. So much has happened right were there people already seen sort of the mobile you know what could happen with mobile at that point obviously you know cell phones were were out but still you know they didn't have the uh, capacity they do even a few years later
1: absolutely right so what i was doing at sony actually before i went to the internet company was i'd done two years in corporate strategy and then i was two years national sales and marketing manager for the wireless telecom division cell phones and pagers which is sort of how i wound up getting introduced to air media in the first place and you could definitely, the, the two things that I would say and that I said then is this stuff is definitely going to happen and I definitely don't know what decade.
0: <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's going to happen, but can't predict when.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it, was a, it was a very interesting lesson in too early being just as expensive and just as wrong as too late.
0: Mm. So what, what, what was next after that then?
1: Next after that was a company called EarthWeb which was a B2B provider of IT information. So they owned a website called developer.com and a website called gamelon.com and a website called, wait for it, y2kinfo.com. Okay. That was basically an online media company for everybody from the CIO down to software developers with information about all sorts of technical subjects, including, but not limited to, how to keep the airplanes from falling out of the sky on January 1st, 2000.
0: Sure. And so that's sort of a precursor to a or sound with a dev side, you know, a Stack Overflow, so that 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 kind of that kind of feeling, just providing providing yeah. content again.
1: Exactly right. Mm.
0: Again, very ahead of its time.
1: <laughs> Thank you, and, and and that one was a little less ahead of its time, which means it was a slightly better business. Yeah, sure. And then after that was a company called Blue Dolphin Group, which was another content marketing company. We did something that is impossible to explain to anybody why it's interesting now. But in the year 2000, it was pretty hip. We made uh, business development deals with sort of every magazine publisher in America. It's about 1,200 titles. And we would digest sort of interesting, actionable information from each of those magazines each week or each month, depending on the frequency of the magazine. And you could come to the website and sign up for a free email newsletter. And you'd say, I'm interested in cooking and genealogy and mountain biking and whatever else you're interested in. And we'd send you sort of a personalized newsletter that would have snippets on all of those categories that you picked and then it would say <clears throat> and this tip came from fine cooking magazine and if you'd like to start a magazine subscription if you'd like to start a subscription to fine cooking click here so we're literally using the content of the magazines to market the magazines in a way that the magazines themselves mostly really didn't
0: yeah and didn't have the capacity to do it at that stage i'm interested in sort of the uh the tech and the manpower that that was necessary to sort of make these things happen because obviously you know you didn't have some cloud software where you could just ping out emails that you have now. What, what sort of, uh, I imagine this with fairly labor-intensive products.
1: Yeah, well, I, the, the human side, the digesting of the magazine articles was certainly labor-intensive. Mm. But the the technology, it, it, it wasn't hard to build. It was just nobody had built things like that before. Okay. So it was more the conceptualization than the brute force of it. Although, you know, certainly technology, any particular kind of technology to serve was far more expensive then than it is now.
0: Yeah. Did you play much of a role on that tech side, or you're more more sort of in the strategy?
1: No, I was more of a product and strategy mm-hmm. guy. I, I uh, my whole career has been about standing next to great technologists and knowing enough to be dangerous and enough to call BS when necessary. But I'm not a technologist, and I've worked with amazing technologists over the years who who can just get the the, the technology to do anything. They can get it to make breakfast if they need to.
0: And I think that's a, I think that's a pretty good takeaway for some of our listeners in the, in that, you know, you can know enough to be dangerous, but then, then it's good to sort of partner with somebody that, that knows a lot more than you.
1: Absolutely right.
0: Yeah, cool. So that word content marketing, you've mentioned it a couple of times. It's one of those words that, you know, content marketing has been around forever, but it, it sort of just come into the, the term itself has become, you know, a big buzzword probably the last you know, five, 10 years. Um, were you calling it then back, back then?
1: Well, we, we didn't call content marketing, content marketing. But interestingly, before social media was called social media, it was called content and community. Mm. And I think that was actually a better name for what it really is. Yeah, I, Social media is not bad. It's not badly descriptive. But content and community, I think, captures more the essence of those two activities or those two media, I think, a little more crisply than social media does.
0: Yeah, it does. Because if you think about, um, I suppose what you know, a platform like facebook is that 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 sums it up very nicely it is i mean it's more content than community now probably but content and community is, is what it is
1: yeah I, I i i agree although i i'm afraid of coming off like a crusty old grandpa going i wish they went back to calling it content community and get off my lawn <laughs>
0: um so around around that time um so if we're talking sort of around 2000s did you did you get hit by the the crash or that you sort of sailed through that
1: uh, it depends which one you mean. So the first the, one. First, the, the, the first, one, uh, w- which happened in the very early 2000s, hmm. um, we were uh, – it was Blue Dolphin Group, and we were actually out raising money, um, and we managed to stay funded throughout, which was fantastic. A lot of companies with really interesting things going on did not manage to stay funded, which was really too bad. And by the time the, 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 the sort of the bigger stock market crash hit in 2008, 2009, um, I was running e-commerce for a company called Vitamin Shop, which is – oddly enough, a chain of vitamin shops.
0: Yeah. And and that made that, did that make it through?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. We actually went public in 2009.
0: Around, were you based out of New York in the early 2000s when you were, when you were doing the Blue Dolphin?
1: So Blue Dolphin was up in Massachusetts. Okay. I, uh, I, there, I, there was, I was doing it with a partner and he had an old company that had about 20 people working for it. And it was either convinced 21 of them to move to the Upper East Side of Manhattan or me and my wife moved up to Massachusetts, so we moved up to Massachusetts, did Blue Dolphin, then we came back.
0: So around that time, in terms of, you know, digital marketing essentially, which is which is what you were working on, you know, again that that term probably uh, you know came along later. But was was there much of a community or was there, was there much information out there, especially in sort of the uh, the sphere you were playing at that time with some of the bigger corporates around, you know, was it was it was it the Wild West for you?
1: I would say the mid to late 90s and into the very early 2000s was the beginning, middle, and the end of the truly Wild West. Yep. And what I mean by that is we were sort of figuring it all out and trying to figure out what's the analogy, what's the thing that already exists that's like this that we can tie it back to. So for online marketing, uh, oddly enough, magazine circulation marketing was a, a pretty direct analogy from a direct response standpoint, from an ROI standpoint, what you'd call performance marketing today, sure. magazine circulators have been doing it for decades. And it was as good an analogy as we could find to say, what are the disciplines? How do you think about this? What are the frameworks? What are the models? And by, as you're coming out of the early 2000s into the mid 2000s, there were just enough people who'd been doing it for long enough, coming from different places, that there were starting to be sort of internet-centered frameworks and disciplines. And they weren't necessarily obviously based on other things. They sort of felt uh, like they had internet at the core, as opposed to the internet's too new. We have to find an analogy outside of the internet to figure out how to do this.
0: Were you excited about the, so if we think about um, magazine circulation, um, obviously, you've, you know, there's some metrics you can pull out of that, but were you excited in those early days about the analytics and the actual, you know, the the accuracy of the, you know, measuring a return on investment that you could get from some of this online content?
1: Absolutely. The, the, what, the thing that appealed to me about the internet the most in the early days was precisely that it was that you could count things so I was I, I mentioned I'd been national sales and marketing manager of Sony's wireless telecommunications division and one of the challenges I had was the same challenge that most people have with their marketing budget which is I know half of it is wasted I just don't know which half sure. <laughs> and and uh, when we got to the internet it, it even from the early days, it was pretty evident that you could understand which half was wasted and you could move it over to the half that was more productive or you could move it to some other activity and you could really start to get a feel for which activities produce value. Even back then, even with very sort of primitive analytic systems and no sophisticated attribution models, you could figure out that if I move money from here to there, it's going to work better. And then you do that. And that's what would happen.
0: And were businesses listening to that? Like what was sort of the the C-suite going, okay, great. This, because I can still see some businesses, you know, flash forward, Twenty years that are still sort of struggling to, struggling to you know grasp that, especially in the smaller you know SMAs.
1: I, I think that's right. I think, I guess observationally, I would say performance marketers tend to look down their nose at brand marketers a little bit, and brand marketers tend to look down their nose at performance marketers a little bit. And I think they're both wrong, to be honest. I think both disciplines uh, combined are more powerful than either one of them standing by itself. So yeah, I agree. I try at least, at least for myself, I try and stay in the middle of the street. And do performance marketing that's accretive to brand uh, and on a good day that's what we get
0: and I think that I mean performance marketing on its own without the brand you know it lacks well it lacks that soul and I think you end up in a place where um, from a from a brand's perspective you know you're playing in a, in a field where I don't know you, you can't you can't be as creative and you can't have as much uh, flair out there in the in the marketplace which 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 you need
1: I, I think that's exactly right because you wind up deleveraging your spend because performance yeah. marketing as long as the ROI metrics are are good you'll keep doing it but you're not getting all you could be getting for that money you're not creating relationship between you yeah. and the customer based on your tone of voice and your personality and and what attracts a certain customer segment and what they're looking for beyond sort of the 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 feature function of what you're selling if you're doing only performance you're definitely leaving money on the table and that's something that I think performance marketers need to understand Brand marketers have heard it enough times that some of them have got it, but I think performance marketers are actually a little bit slower to realize that they're actually leaving money on the table.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I think, it's, I think you're right. It's nice to have a, a mix of those two, so the two voices in, in the room.
1: Yeah, I, I think that's right. If, if, you, if you try and do both of those disciplines at the same time, I just think you wind up in better places. And if you do it in a customer-centered way, then you really wind up in better places.
0: I talk a lot to, um, to marketers uh, here in Australia, you know, and probably in the in that SME kind of category and, you know, the, the amount of hats that, you know, a, a, a marketing manager in a, in a small business or even a medium-sized business has to wear is, is incredible these days and, you know, you just talked about a, a few disciplines there, performance marketing, content marketing, brand marketing, but then, you know, even in performance, you can dive down into, you know, 15 different disciplines in there. It's, it's quite incredible.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. What I think is different now than a little while ago is you go back 10 or 15 years and you could really know everything there was to know about the core disciplines of performance marketing online. And today that's just not possible. There's too much sophistication, too much technology, and people rightly tend to specialize more because you you can be you can be across the disciplines, but you can't be expert in all of them. There's just there are people who just do one thing and they've just been doing that one thing. They've just been doing paid search marketing or they've just been running affiliate programs and they know so much about it and they have such feel for that, that uh, to think that you can sort of know all of both of those things and all of 10 other things at the same time with the depth and, and sophistication that exists today is just, it's just not the case.
0: Yeah, that's right. And I think from a business perspective, um, I highly recommend that people do go and look for, you know, a a specialized paid or a specialized SEO professional to, you know, because there is so much nuance between all those things and, you know, paying the extra money to get someone that's really at the top of their game is is probably going to end up in your, in your bottom, bottom line.
1: I I certainly agree with that. With the marketing team we have at Shutterstock is an extraordinary group of people who are just not only talented and passionate, but deeply knowledgeable about their subject matter. And, and, their subject matter is fairly diverse and the team covers the waterfront, but any one of us, I don't think has a chance.
0: All right. Well, beautiful segue. So, uh, Shutterstock. So I think that most of our listeners would have heard, and if not heard of then definitely use Shutterstock in the past. How long have you been there for?
1: I've been there uh, about 18 months. Cool.
0: So um, tell us a bit about, about your role. Um, and I suppose for those that don't know, you know what Shutterstock does...
1: Yeah, so Shutterstock is leading provider of stock, video, music, still images, photography, vector graphics, basically all the assets you need to make great marketing, great media, websites, advertisements, uh, movies, television shows, really anything that you can make with media you can make with Shutterstock. And uh, my role is, is a Global Chief Marketing Officer, which is largely... Sort of taking credit for other people's work which i hope i'll get the chance to do somewhere in this conversation and really getting out of the way and removing obstacles to the marketing teams uh, and the company's success
0: nice um so one of the things that i wanted to talk about so the, the name of our podcast humans aren't robots um is uh we like to delve into i suppose that the human side behind digital so stock photography in general but maybe i think i think a lot of stock content um you know sometimes gets a bad rep for lacking some of that human element. Um, it seems like Shutterstock have been doing a lot to sort of break through that image. What What are some of the things that you've been doing in in that area?
1: That, that's a That's a really good question. I'm glad you asked it. So one of the things that that that's true about Shutterstock is we have the largest and freshest collection of assets on the planet. We just do by the numbers. We've got hundreds of millions of assets. We We add a million and a half assets every week wow. from our network of a million contributors globally in over 100 countries. And the, the artistry of what they're doing is amazing. And it's not that we don't have anything that looks stocky, because we do, because okay. some people want that. But we have also just crazy, jaw-dropping, just stopping power stuff, whether it be the music, the video, or the images, that are just just incredibly artistic and sort of demand your attention and that's where the genesis of of our current campaign the it's not stock at shutterstock campaign came from Mm. was we decided we're not going to tell people that we've got this stuff because who cares we're going to show people the stuff and see if they're excited about it and and we're going to show what you can do with it we're just going to be like any customer of shutterstock and use the stuff to do our marketing and we'll show what you can do and we'll tell you how to do it and uh, it's been pretty pretty exciting and, and quite a lot of fun
0: so a good example of that, um, which I'm sure you want to talk about, was the uh, the, the, the FIRE campaign, um, which you, I think at Mumbrella, the, the, the topic of your conversation was um, leveraging culturally relevant moments to create viral campaigns. Um, so if you wanted to go into that.
1: Uh, I love a good straight man. Thank you for asking. <laughs>
0: um,
1: yeah, they, basically, again, the idea behind the campaign was to show, not tell what you could do with our stuff. And so uh, at the beginning of last year, I guess the beginning of this year, when uh when the two Fire Festival documentaries dropped, uh, one on Netflix and one on Hulu. For those who don't know, the Fire Festival was an ill-fated music festival that where the 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 creator, a guy named Billy McFarlane, created this incredible trailer that he spent millions of dollars on flying celebrities and entertainers and models and singers down to this deserted island in the Bahamas that used to be owned by Pablo Escobar and production crews and made this just this insane trailer that promised the music festival of a lifetime. I mean, it really looked incredible. And the problem was he never actually was able to pull the festival off, and he didn't cancel until the day of the festival when everybody had already flown in to attend, and they were promised luxury accommodations and gourmet food. And meanwhile, there was no running water. There was no toilets. It was a total disaster. And he wound up going to jail, actually. But what we did was we said, this is our opportunity. We'll show what he could have done or what he should have done. We'll make the same trailer with uh, Shutterstock, uh, video footage, and music from our premiumbeat.com website. And for about $2,000 and about two days' worth of work uh, and a couple hours in the editing bay, we put out this sort of mock trailer uh, for the for the music festival, and it just, it just went completely nuts and completely viral in the marketing and creative community. I mean, it was really just – we had a real tiger by the tail. It was a lot of fun to watch, and it was uh, very gratifying to see people who do what we do for a living just having a really good time enjoying our little moment of creativity and sort of some of them saying to us, Scott, I wish we could do marketing like that. And I'm like, you can, it's, it's cheap and it's quick. What's the problem?
0: It's, it's so great to sort of have that, uh, ability to be meta and, and, you know, use your own product to, to sell your own product. Um, if, if, if only, you know, you'd done the fire festival, you could have spent the rest of the millions and actually putting the thing together. Um, in your talk in Mumbrella, um, I'm interested to know sort of, so, you know, creating a viral video is not as easy as it seems obviously um, and you've had some luck there but what do you think are some of the ingredients to go into potentially creating something like that
1: uh, I, I so that, that that's a great question and and I clearly there's luck and 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 sometimes you just hit the right thing at the right moment so let me not pretend otherwise but what so what's nice about what we did is it was or time consumptive to do, so you can take a a fair number of swings at the plate to see if you can catch that tiger by the tail. But the the cookbook that we've come up with that we shared at Mumbrella was basically be yourself, be remarkable, say something interesting, communicate what makes you different and special. And then the, the, the interesting part was not aim at the people who are your target market But aim at content that the people who are in your target market will want to share with other people in your target market, Mm. which takes a little bit more thinking, but is actually some of the secret sauce that made this work. Because when people share content, they're only going to share it with so many people. So if it's sort of broadly entertaining to all consumers, they're going to share it with their wife, their husband, their sister, their brother, their aunt, their uncle, their dog. And then you're doing entertainment. You're not doing marketing unless that's your market. We are, uh, we're sort of a B2B product, so we aim at creatives and marketing managers and social media managers, and people have to produce a lot, of, a lot of content and people who are sort of struggling at the moment with the explosion of content and quality that needs to be produced now relative to, say, five years ago. And so what we did and what we do with our other pieces is market – we sort of do the inside joke thing where those people get it and they're going to share it with other people like that. They're not necessarily going to share it with their friends outside of the industry because they won't find it as funny. And that, I think, is some of what we did with a little bit of intentionality that actually worked out pretty well.
0: And that's, I mean, even if you've got quite a broad demographic like you do, you can still sort of touch on some of those cultural memes or touch on something that you know is going to strike a nerve.
1: Exactly right. So for April Fool's, another piece that we did, uh, we did a parody where... We were building the world's largest physical library okay. uh, for all of our assets, and we had a section uh, called Millennials holding sparklers and tube sock vectors. <laughs> and and if you're not in the marketing industry, that is somewhere between not funny and I don't get it at all.
0: Yeah, sure. <laughs> but
1: if you're in the marketing industry, and particularly if you're close to being the person who consumes our stuff, yeah, that's good stuff.
0: That is good stuff. There's some. There's been some good. Um, I've seen a few good spoofs around. Um, you know, stock video and you know some. You know dramatic music ones. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of fun you can have with that. And and there is so much content.
1: It is a category that certainly opens itself up for that. And I think one of the things that people enjoyed about our pieces is, again, we're like all of our customers. We see that humor. We think we have amazing stuff that you can do amazing things with, but we're not afraid to have a little fun as well.
0: So, so that's a good segue. I think that especially, you know, on in a social feed that, you know, is heavily congested, um, fun and satire and, uh, you know, just the the lighter side of life um, often works really well to cut through. Obviously, there's the opposite and, you know, serious content. But a lot of businesses worry, I think, about being, okay, we might be a traditionally conservative industry or um, feel as if, you know, our tone of voice as a brand doesn't have that, that comedy or satire element. Do you think that businesses, you know, in that, in that model can break out and have some fun with their, with their content marketing?
1: I, I absolutely do. Look, we, we are very proud of how we empower the world's storytellers to tell their stories. And, and, and particularly the marketing department, as you'd imagine, like we, we feel like we work at the candy factory and we sell candy to all the candy stores <laughs> and, and we sure like candy, but at the end of the day, we're not, we're, we're not curing cancer. and We're not dispatching ambulances we're selling a product that helps businesses grow and we're really proud of that, but there's nothing wrong with having a little fun at the same time. And, and it's also, it's not the only personality that you can have, but your brand has to have a personality. It has to be a three dimensional person so that other people know how they're supposed to relate to it. And if they like it or not, like our brand, our our brand positioning with this, this tone of voice and this sort of self-effacing humor, it might not be for everybody. And, and, and that's okay, but great brands often are not for everybody at least at the beginning. I mean, Apple became for everybody by saying, hey, we're not for everybody. Think different. But I mean, they have, it, it's that personality. It, their their personality wasn't funny. Their personality was rebel and iconoclast. It's just, you can't be the muddy middle. You can't be vanilla. You've got to go somewhere interesting if you want people to follow you.
0: And I think that, I think if you're not pissing people off or you're not rubbing people the wrong way, then you're probably doing something wrong. I think- You're, you're like, not trying hard enough. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I I, I think, I, I don't know if I, if I shared it with you, but there was a really good example of- um. Uh, Ikea here locally, their marketing department, leveraging some cultural relevancy. We had an election um, earlier in the year, federal election, and there was a Trump-like character called uh, Clive Palmer, a conservative guy running, spent, he's, he's a, I don't know what he does, but wealthy guy, spent millions and millions of dollars on all this billboard advertising, literally along the lines of the Make Australia Great Again. Um, but IKEA, um, after he, he didn't even win a single seat in the election, they ran out these um, great spoof billboard ads in the same color tone as him saying, Geez, Clive, $60 million and not even a single seat as an ad for one of their, their seats. So, again, a, a great, you know, that, that ad wouldn't work two months later, but right then and there, it's uh, the type of thing that, that can go viral.
1: Yeah, no, and and again, when you when you leverage these cultural moments, when you're sort of on top of the news, and you be and you're sort of your topic is what everybody's already talking about, and then you sort of sneak into that conversation, the opportunity to 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 newsjack uh, is is is, a, is definitely one way to play that game, and it's a it's a lot of fun to try, and and it's really fun when it works.
0: Yeah, and I th- I, one of the things that I think um, has changed in the last you know ten years, fifteen years, is that. Um, you know, one day IKEA can be spoofing Clive Palmer, and the, and the next day they could be doing something quite different. Um, you know, politically or from a tone point of view. But I, I don't think people have that same, you know, memory of a brand that you might have had 30 years ago. Like you can play in the market, and you can, you know, you can, you can test segments of the market with with different tones and, and different content. So I don't, I don't think, you know, one ad's going to crush a brand.
1: I, I think that's exactly right, and that's why I say personality. Right. Real people are not one dimensional. Real people are not only funny or only political or only smart or only rebels. They're people. They're, they're rounded. And they're different at the pub than they are at work. And they're different at work with the people they work with most closely than they are with people they work with less closely. All of those things are authentically each of us. And all of those things can authentically belong to a brand. IKEA can have more than one face. What you can't do is clang against yourself. You can't be, you can't be the thing you are and the opposite of the thing you are, but to be political and funny, I know plenty of people who are political and funny. So it gives you that room as a brand to sort of stretch your wings a little bit and not be so afraid. Good brands are elastic, right? They're not brittle. They don't break so easily. And you gotta, you can't, if you have a brand, you can't be afraid to take it out for a spin and see what it'll do.
0: I I think that analogy back to a personality. And we often, um, uh, in, in the agency I run, we talk about if someone's coming in looking for a new website, if your website was a person, who would it be? Um, starting to, to literally think about, um, you know, a campaign or, a, or a you know, a digital, digital product as a, as a person. You know, if they walked into a, a ballroom, you know, what, what are they going to look like? What are they going to say? How are they going to interact with people?
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right because nobody ever answers that question with somebody who's kind of cautious and is very afraid <laughs> to offend anybody and doesn't really have anything interesting to say because they want to make sure that they don't get in trouble. Like that's never been the answer to that question.
0: Never, I know. I sort of George Clooney or something like that,
1: right? But but the, and yet people manage their brands that way.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah very interesting. Um, so, um, getting towards the end of our time here, but jumping forward. So, I mean, you've seen a lot of change in the industry over the last twenty-five years. What what's coming up next? Do you think? What What do you see on the horizon?
1: Change. What What's been amazing about the time I've spent uh, on the internet? is, I've never gotten to relax. I've never gotten to sit back and go, I know how to do this to the level that it can be known how to do this. I know paid search as well as it can be done. I know uh, customer journeys as well as they can be done. I know conversion funnels as well as they can be done. I know growth loops as well as they can be done. It not only does it keep changing, but it feels like it's changing at an accelerating rate. And that's what's so exhilarating for me and for a lot of other internet marketers is, it's always new and it's always fresh and we're always learning how to do new things and more sophisticated things. And we never get to really be comfortable, but we're having an awful lot of fun.
0: As a young marketer, so I, I do a bit of mentoring with um, uni students and grads. As a young marketer, um, you sort of thrust into this world that you just described and that can be seen rather than, you know, that fun, which is how I see it, but as daunting, how am I, gonna, how am I supposed to know all of these things? How, as a young marketer, what advice would you give to, to dive in?
1: Oh, I don't know that I'm in the advice-giving business, but I guess <laughs> I, I guess what I would I guess what I would say to young me, rather mm-hmm. than young somebody else, sure. is try a bunch of things and find the one that you like doing, and then get good at that. Like, be good at something, and then you can, be, and then you have the opportunity to be good at two things. Like, I wouldn't try and cover the whole waterfront. I, I see some people who are so directed in their careers, and so I've got to get this experience, then I've got to get that experience, then they're gonna get the, the, like they're so pre-programmed and linear. I think that for me, the truly creative marketers, whether they be uh, designers or, or marketing managers or any of those kinds of people are the people who have diversity of experience and it doesn't necessarily even need to be all marketing, but that diversity of experience, that diversity of worldview and that diversity of background really makes for more interesting storytelling, makes for more interesting decisioning, makes for more interesting campaigns than does sort of that linear progression marketing robot that says i got to do this then i got to do this then i got to do this
0: that's beautiful i I could not agree more i think uh, it takes a sort of diverse sort of range of interests and life experiences to to create something interesting
1: yeah i think that's right even even just speaking for myself and looking back on my own career my resume doesn't make sense to anyone who's not me and there are (laughs) days when it doesn't make sense to me either but it's been an awfully good time
0: oh well i hope the the ride continues to be fun Are are you heading down to australia again anytime soon
1: I hope so. I certainly hope so.
0: There's a lot. There's a lot to see.
1: Yeah, no. It's not only is there a lot to see. It's actually a, an important market for us. Okay. We're seeing very good growth in that market, and we're investing in that market. So if I get the excuse to come back, you know, I'm coming back.
0: Beautiful. Oh well. Um, if you if you get down to Adelaide, we we would love to see you. Um, if people want to find out more about Shutterstock, obviously Shutterstock's pretty easy to find. Um, any other any other links you'd like to throw out?
1: No, Shutterstock.com. Just come check it out
0: beautiful and there's some really great content on there we were actually uh, doing a campaign the other day and found some some pretty cool image sets i think you know with the you know, a million and a half assets a week that's that's incredible so if you can't find what you need you need to look harder
1: yeah we, we certainly have it
0: beautiful oh thanks so much for taking the time out of your evening and uh yeah next time you're down in australia i'd love to say good day.
1: sounds good sam it's great talking to you beautiful thanks so much Lou. take care thanks bye-bye
0: Hey everybody, Sam here again. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you agree with me that that was a super fascinating conversation. Lou really has uh, been at the forefront of this industry um, in such an exciting period in history. And it looks like he's going on to do some really cool stuff too. So again, if, if you haven't heard of Shutterstock, what are you doing with yourself? Looking for any stock content, video, audio, vector artwork, music jump onto Shutterstock and check it out. Thanks again for your time, Lou. Much appreciated. And I would love to catch up with a beer in New York when I'm over there. As always, thank you so much for listening, everybody. We wouldn't do this without your support. Um, And if you do enjoy it, please share it with somebody you love or somebody you hate. Doesn't really bother me. Share it with somebody. So until next time, uh, avoid uh, Blade Runners if you are a robot. But if you're not, Stay cool. We'll catch you then.